Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we've been actually walking through a series this fall that's been generated by the members of our church. Uh, I asked in the summer, I said, hey, what are some questions that, that you have um, about uh, what we believe, why we believe it, um, how does our faith inform us, and how we interact with the issues of the day? And so for a number of weeks, uh, you all submitted questions, and I have done my best uh, to work through those questions. Some of them we've um, answered in, in writing uh, on our website through a blog. Pastor Aaron answered one about worship a few weeks ago. Um, some of them we've answered through some videos. Uh, this last week I did a, a short video that's on our YouTube video page. And then many of them we've discussed here. And when we've discussed it here, a lot of it has been interaction with each other, too, because uh, many, of it, uh, many of the questions that come in, uh, it's less about the answer and how, more about how we respond to the answer at times. And so many of you have had chances to kind of respond to those questions. The very first one, if you're here uh, with us, we answered the question, what about tattoos? <laughs> right? And some of you are like, ooh, what about tattoos? I wasn't here for that one. Well, you can listen online. But, um, but what we found as we've answered these questions is there's bigger questions, right? So we may start with the question of tattoos, but then that goes into, well, how do we interpret the Old Testament and all of the laws in the Old Testament? Or this may be true, but how do we walk out this truth? How does it affect our lives? And so oftentimes what we find when we ask a question, there's other questions that go with it. So this is our last week uh, with in, in this particular series. But what, I'm, what I really hope is it's not the end of questions, right? That we are a church, we will be a church where we can wrestle with truths, and not always in a Sunday monologue kind of way, but with each other in our community groups, over coffee, in our homes, that we are taking the truths of Scripture and we are saying, how does this affect my life. Because if we have a, a faith that is only relevant for an hour and a half on Sunday, that is no faith at all. We want to be walking it out and living it out. So we're all in process in this. So for this last question, I thought we'd end with a pretty easy one. Um, how does the Bible address the topic of gender identity, and how should Christians interact with the culture on this issue? Not an easy one, right? Multifaceted question. Many uh, maybe danger zones that we could tread on, maybe many triggers. And also for some people in our congregation, this may be deeply personal. You may feel this one where, where others uh, maybe don't impact you as much. So this is multifaceted for, for a, a lot of reasons. Uh, well, one is it, it's a human issue. It's, we're talking about people when we talk about this question. So we have to keep that forefront. But we also have to acknowledge that this particular question, this particular issue, has become uh, front and center in our culture in recent years. That all sorts of things have latched onto this question, but also for those that wrestle with this particular issue. So this is multifaceted for all of those reasons. 
And I will just say up front, we're not going to get to all of the things, to all the facets. We're not going to be able to go down every rabbit trail and address every cultural nuance in this particular question. But we do feel like it, we have to talk about it. <laughs> and so the person that submitted this question, thank you, because we want to be this kind of church. We can wrestle with these types of truths. So just as a definition for those of you um, that may be wondering, so we have a kind of a starting point. Um, the, the term gender identity is one's own internal sense of self and their gender, whether that is man, woman, neither, or both. What we've seen uh, happen very rapidly in American culture, um, and this is why this is, even this phrasing is new for many people, is what we've seen in our American culture is a, a very rapid uncoupling of biological sex from gender identity. In other words, what we see, from what we see, from how we feel. And so we, we see this in, in a myriad of ways. But this has been something that's, that people have wrestled with for, for years and for millennium, where they look at themselves and they say, I see who I am biologically, but I feel different on the inside. What do I do with that? And, and so this isn't uh, something that's new. Um, but it is, it's something a, a, a percentage of people throughout history have felt. What is new, though, is that culture at large, um, including medical professionals, would in the past help people who felt this incongruity, this disconnect between their biological sex and their inward feelings of gender. In, in the past, they would help people to realign their inward feelings with their biological reality. But now what we have in our current day, and this is very recent, is we have the opposite. We have, including medical professionals, trying to realign the biological reality with the inward feelings. And so, as I'm sure you know, things have moved pretty quickly in our society from there. So in the big picture, and this is what we want to do, we need to do, we need to zoom out. In the big picture with this question we're talking about identity. Who am I? What makes me, me? And so there's this subjective and objective reality. You know what subjective and objective mean? Objective is it's true no matter what anybody says or how you feel. But subjective is, well, it's true maybe for me or in this particular situation or based on how I feel. And so this subjective and objective wrestling in our culture um, leads us to ask another question. If I deeply feel something, does that make it true? If I deeply feel something, does that make it true? What do you think? In, in many ways, let's be honest, yes. Because our feelings are often connected to reality, to biological reality, to situations and circumstances that are happening in our lives. Last Sunday, uh, like uh, just an hour or two before we met for worship, Aaron and Tiffany Zavala welcomed baby Aiden into their lives. And they experienced immense joy. That feeling was connected to a reality, something that triggered that feeling. So our feelings can be connected to reality. When, when our health is in danger, we feel fear, right? 
when whether chemical imbalances in our brain or situations in our lives, many people feel depressed. So our feelings often are connected to truth and to reality. They reflect what is happening around us. But feelings aren't always aligned with truth either. When a a young girl who's 70, 80 pounds goes to her doctor and she says, I feel fat, the doctor has a responsibility to say, that is not true. You are not fat. Uh, When I was living in Spokane, there was a huge controversy that blew up. Uh, This is back in 2015 because the head of the NAACP had claimed to be a black woman when, in fact, her parents were both white since she had been raised white. Her name was Rachel Dolezal. Maybe some of you remember that. She claimed to be something that biologically she was not, and it became a big, huge uproar. So while our feelings may connect with reality, that is not always the case. And so, as the saying goes, feelings aren't fact. So to understand who we are, we need to also understand what is true. We need objective truth, something outside of ourselves that informs us about who we are. And so this shouldn't come as a surprise because we're sitting in a, a building that the church gathers in. But as followers of Jesus, we find our identity, questions about our identity, and about who we are from God's word. And so our identity is, is rooted actually in a garden. It's rooted in a garden. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them today to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Pretty easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. So even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll be able to find it. If you don't own a Bible, there's some in the pews in front of you. We'd love for you just to take it. Our name's not on it. It's not stealing. We're offering it to you. Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. Now, I want you to imagine that you're reading this for the very first time, and you're reading it because you are wondering about who you are. You're wondering about your identity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now imagine you're reading this for the very first time. And you're going, who am I? And God is saying, you are made intentionally. You're made on purpose. You're not an accident. That whether you are male or female, you are made to reflect the image of God. Later on in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see that that man was created first and then woman. and And it points out that they were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, when I was a kid and I read that, I thought, well, that's, they were both naked. That's kind of weird. <laughs> and they weren't shamed about it. They weren't nervous about it. We might read that through that lens. But what, 
what actually is really significant about that is that male and female looked at each other. They saw in each other the image of God, but they also saw in each other something wholly different. And in that difference, there was no what? There was no shame. We, man and woman are different. And in that difference, they actually, they actually find their identity. They see the difference, yet the equality in who God created them to be. So this unique identity is first displayed in these physical differences that man and woman see in each other. So sex differences say something incredibly important about our identity. But just as important to understand, we see that both man and woman, both were created in the image of God. Now, maybe you heard this before and you thought, does that mean God looks like me? (laughs) And in every culture, any depiction of God will often look like that culture, right? Right. The the hair color, the skin color, whatever it would be. We, we believe that God is like us, that he likes the things that we like. But when the Seahawks lose, we're a little confused, right? We thought, we thought you were on our side, God. But that's not the type of, of image that's represented here. When, when the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, it's not in the physical aspect. In, in both male and female, image here means likeness and representation. Likeness and representation. So as you read the Genesis narrative that says that man and woman is supposed to have dominion over the earth. We are supposed to rule this creation that God has made. So God has given it to us to rule as his ambassadors, as representatives of him. In that way, we are like, we bear the image of God. In in relationships with each other, we bear the image of God in how we love and give and take care of in our wisdom, in righteousness, in creativity, in love, all of these things are a reflection of God, the image of God in us. So from the outset, the defining difference of male and female isn't um, hairstyle or makeup or love of sports or or a type of, of personality. The defining difference of male and female is biology. Man and woman are unique in their biology, yet both equal in their reflection of the image of God. And it's in this very reason that God, when he made Adam, he goes, hmm, not quite there yet. (laughs) Everything else up to that point, good, 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 something's not there. Oh, woman, now it's good. And all the men said, amen. Amen. So it's because of this that when we look at each other, we don't just see biological difference, but we actually see something of God himself in our nature. You know, uh, in the um, cultures that are much older than America, church architecture was designed in such a way that it was a part of the worship experience. You know, nowadays, many churches, they meet in a, in a warehouse or a school or wherever they can meet, and there's nothing wrong with that. I was actually probably more aligned with the early church than not. But as, as Christianity took off and became more influential, especially in European culture, uh, the very design of the cathedrals was meant to, to point to the awesomeness of God. If you've ever been in an old cathedral, you, you know what I mean. I mean, 
beautiful ornate artwork and artistry. And, and many of the stained glass in old cathedrals even tells the story of Scripture alongside of it. So when people would gather for worship, everything was oriented toward the glory of God in those cathedrals. It's beautiful. And in many of those worship gatherings, um, as villagers would come in, this would be some of the only places that they would experience this type of, of worship experience. There was no streaming music there they could just tap into from home and be like, hey, we're getting good stuff here. Uh, there was no, uh, many of them didn't even have art in their homes, right? Now it's customary in our homes to put artwork on the walls. They would only see these displays when they gathered to worship together. And so when Genesis says that God created man in his own image, in the image of male and female, he created him. There's this idea that this is the crowning achievement of creation. Turn to somebody this morning and say, you are a crowning achievement. Boy, some of you did not mean that at all. <laughs> we'll let you, I'll let you work that out after we're done. So, so the crowning achievement of God's creation is you and me. It's humanity. Like, it's the only thing in all humanity that God says, in them is my image. In humanity, in male and female. This image of God means that in you, you the very existence that God has given you, there is something that is directly connected to who he is. We see reflections of that in all sorts of things in God's creation. But in humanity, there is something special. With this in mind, uh, pastor and author Dave Lomas says this. He says, every human endeavor to protect the vulnerable, disenfranchised and oppressed, including things like the American Civil Rights Movement or women's suffrage or the movement to end abortion or efforts towards clean water, all of these things have roots in a belief that a human person is fundamentally valuable and consequently has certain rights that are wrong to deny. Similarly, every human movement toward repression and totalitarianism, whether it be communism to Sharia law to fascism, all of those things grow in the soil of ignorance or intentional dehumanization. And they suggest that certain humans matter more and are more valuable than other humans. This is not a biblical truth. And so as Christians, when we look at another human being, we don't just see stardust that somehow organized itself. We see the very image of God. So here's the key to our identity that we see from the moment of creation. Identity is not something you find. Identity is something you receive. It is who God called you to be. And so you receive that. And scripture has so much to say about this, about who we are, who we are designed to be. Now, the, the problem is our culture says identity is something you need to put on, almost like a pair of clothes. 
And we accept that and we put on less true things about ourselves that cloud the very truest thing, who we were meant to be. And some of you had no choice in that. Maybe you were spoken things to at a young age, that you were useless or that you were not going to amount to anything. And that was said to you by a parent or a loved one or a teacher. Some of you maybe believed that even though it wasn't directly said to you. I remember talking to a young boy once, and we were at a, at a graduation party, and he introduces himself to me. And the very first thing he says after his name is, I have ADD. And I thought, why are you telling me? You just met me. Why is that the, ne- the first thing that you're telling me about yourself? It was because he had taken on this as a core part of his identity. And so we do that to ourselves or we let other people speak those things to us. And we see something happen very quickly to God's most beautiful work of art in the garden. Genesis records this as well. Satan, the deceiver, that's his name, that's his nature. He tried to offer a different identity. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Okay, whenever you hear that, Did God really say? Your warning flag should go up. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said, did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is Satan working here right from the very beginning in humanity? What is he trying to do? He's trying to speak a different identity. What does he say? He says, you will be like God. What's the problem with that statement? They already are. Like, God has already given them this identity. And so Satan is trying to say, oh, wait wait a second, wait a second. That's not true. You need to put on this thing. You need to do this thing, and then you will be. And this lie has been spoken to humanity, has worked its way through the very fabric of humanity ever since. From the beginning, Satan has been tricking people into thinking that there won't be any consequences to their rejection of God's ways. Just do this thing and then it will be okay. Then you will know fully who you are. Then you can attain a place of peace in your life and of fulfillment. Just reject God and do this thing. So just after this moment, after they rebel against God's ways, after they believe the lies of Satan, God meets them in the garden and he asks them what? Why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Immediately that relationship is now fractured. Unfortunately, once it was unleashed, the effect of sin would be passed down to every human. And Satan would continue to lie and deceive. So today we still see, instead of receiving identity from God, humanity tries to do whatever they can to find it themselves. humanity right now is wired to find our identity in what we do and what we desire and what we have. 
Think about that. What we do, what we desire, and what we have. How many times do you meet somebody? Maybe the, sec- the first thing they tell you about themselves isn't that they have ADD, but it's what they do for work. As if that's a core part of their identity. What we see in scripture and what we know to be true is that we are an embodied creation. We are an embodied creation. Who we are truly has physical and tangible expressions. And so we have longings and desires that God has given us that are manifested in our physical bodies. We find out in in being an embodied creation that these desires, these things that God has given us, they are only truly fulfilled when we are connected with and to God. But when we aren't connected to God, when, when we live this embodied life disconnected from him, then these desires begin to lead us to search for our identity, to search for fulfillment. How many of you, when you're, when you're watching uh, TV or when you're watching maybe a, a sporting event or, some, or your favorite program, Pay attention to the messaging of the commercials. If you haven't, I would encourage you, like a, like a cultural um, detective, if you, if you were trying to figure out what the greatest needs of a culture were just based on the commercials that were showed, what would you discover? What would you discover? Many of us just, whoop, we just ignore it, right? We're bombarded by advertising all the time. But this advertising is trying to speak something to us, to shape our very identities. And it also, though, not only does it attempt to shape our identities, but it also speaks to our deepest longings, our deepest desires. So it actually reflects a reality as much as it tries to create a reality. We might be as a church or as people in, in this culture, uh, we might be amazed at how quickly the, the topic of gender has become center stage in our Western culture. But as Christians, we really shouldn't be surprised. This particular issue in, in all of its connected points is, is simply another signpost that points us to the brokenness of humanity towards the longing to be known and to be at peace and to be fulfilled. So it shouldn't surprise us. And it should instead encourage us to share the good news of the kingdom of God. That we are embodied people. That we belong to the one who made us. And there's nothing that highlights this powerful truth of being embodied more powerfully, more impactful than the arrival of Jesus. John's gospel account opens with this very poetic description of the identity of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on, John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So here is humanity. We are made in the image of God, but sin has so clouded our understanding that we are clinging to a whole bunch of things that are less true about us and things that keep us from seeing the truest thing. 
And so when John says that Jesus is the light of the world, he comes to shine a light on these things, to expose them for what they are. God himself became embodied so that we could know our true identity, so that we could be reunited with our creator. So God decides to get as close to us as he has since Genesis and enter into, we call that in the incarnation, enter into humanity. And this is where the kingdom truth starts to bring restoration and healing to a broken people. A, a huge part of Jesus' ministry involved stripping away both the outright lies and the less true things that people believed about themselves. One guy named Nicodemus, religious leader, has it all together. Jesus says to him, you're missing it. You need to be born again. In other words, you need to start all the way over with a different relationship, a different viewpoint. Uh, another guy named Zacchaeus hated in his town because he was a tax collector, stealing from people, uh, a pawn of the oppressors. And Jesus sees him and he says, I am going to go to your house. We're going to have dinner tonight. Jesus speaks to this disconnect that he has both from society and from God and it changes Zacchaeus' life. One of my favorite stories was this woman who was caught in adultery. She had, she had sinned. Jesus makes no uh, questions about that. But what he does is he meets her in her sin, he extends her compassion, and he gives her a way out. And his parting words to her was, nobody is here to condemn you, and I won't either. But don't sin anymore. New identity. This is what Jesus does. He meets us in the brokenness of our lives, and he speaks something to us that we cannot find in any advertising, any medical intervention, any number in our bank account. Only Jesus. And so when Jesus came, he came to redeem us from sin, to reunite us with God in our true identity. And this would be possible because of what he would do for us. Again, looking at the Gospel of John, he says, Yet... To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent nor of a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Here again, something that we what? Receive. We receive this identity. Jesus gives it to us. You have a choice to receive it or not. You don't have to put it on or make it up or go looking for it. Jesus says, here it is. So we might ask this question, what less true things, what less true things about you have you made the most true? Is it your disability? Is it who you're attracted to? Is it your past mistakes? Is it your future hopes? What less true things have you made the most true? what you do, what you have, what you feel or desire. There are a lot of things about you and I that are true, but what is most true is that you were made in the image of God. And if you don't know that or you don't feel that to be true, that's okay. This is why Jesus came. He came to free you from sin and from the confusion that clothes you in less true things. And this is what Jesus secured for you on the cross. In his death, he broke the power of sin and he revealed the lies of Satan in the garden for what they are. And this identity isn't something you have to find or make or attain. Again, it's something 
you receive. So to respond to the question, the cultural question that's being asked, it's very clear from Genesis and reinforced and reaffirmed from Genesis through Moses and Noah all the way to Jesus. God designed humanity as male and female. And that truth of our identity is absolutely congruent with who he has created us to be biologically. Our outward physical body reflects the inward truth of who God designed us to be. So that's what scripture says, but then we ask, what about our culture? What about our culture? Our culture is saying something completely different. You know, J.T. Thomas said this with us a few weeks ago. Um, he says, our memory, especially as Western, Western people, is way too short. Way too short. You know, we, we often forget what the culture has said is true and right in the past that we look at now and go, I can't believe we ever thought that. You know, at one point we thought smoking cigarettes was healthy. <laughs> right? At one point uh, in our culture, we thought slavery was acceptable. Like, this is, these are cultural movements throughout history. Uh, we, my family has a close tie to the country of China. In China at one point, the, it was um, a, a cultural practice for women to have their feet broken at a very young age, wrapped up so that they would never grow more than like the size of a baby's foot. It's called foot binding. This practice, a cultural practice, went on for 1,000 years. In fact, the last store in China that sold shoes for women that had their feet bind was closed in the country in 1999. This was a cultural practice that was thought to be beautiful and acceptable and was horrific. So what about the culture? Every culture thinks that they're on the edge of progress. Every culture thinks that what they're doing now should have been done a long time ago. Every culture has things in it that are evil and destructive. What do we do? Whether it comes via fashion or politics or special interests, the people of, as the people of God, we always have to evaluate culture by the truth of God, not the other way around. And so when believers have said, we believe this to be true for 2,000 years, the, the entirety of church history, and then all of a sudden they go, well, maybe not. Shouldn't we pause? Shouldn't we question? Shouldn't we, at very least, go back to God's word and say, hmm, why are we thinking differently? And so the people, as the people of God, we have to also acknowledge that evil often hitches itself to broken and lost people and then uses them as a vehicle to perpetuate more evil. This is how Satan loves to work because it veils his influence. And we see in our current day how this agenda of the enemy heightens the pain of those who are broken and lost and confused about their own identity. We also have to acknowledge that historically the church has not done a good job at differentiating between those who are hurting and confused and need Jesus and the way that Satan is using them. In other words, we often see people as some sort of enemy when the real enemy is not them at all. 
It's the lies that are being told to them by the enemy. Did you know that over 40% of transgender individuals have suicidal thoughts, regardless of whether they've gone through any kind of medical transition or not? The, the statistics show those, those, things, those percentages don't change. And so the church in no way should be looking at people who are wrestling with their identity as some sort of soldiers to defeat in a culture war. It's not the approach of God. So while we hold to the truth of God, our approach should also be the same as God's. What is God's approach? Romans 2.4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's what? Kindness. kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. This is the way of God in the midst of a culture that opposes him. At the same time, as it relates to enacting policies, such as those that allow children to be given body-altering drugs or having parts of their bodies removed, this is no different than what's happened in other cultures historically, like China. We shouldn't be afraid to call those policies for what they are, evil, being perpetrated on the most vulnerable in our society. So standing on the truth of God-given identity is not, as the culture would say, rooted in some sort of phobia. It's actually in the opposite. It's rooted in a deep sense of care and compassion for those that are experiencing feelings that are incongruent with their biological realities. So we as Christians, we should stand against evil practices, but we should also follow Jesus' lead as it relates to the lost around us. One of the things that was most often said about Jesus, about the ministry of Jesus, isn't that he was picketing on the corners or, or fighting for legislation, but it was this. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so as a church, again, we don't want to engage in cultural wars that, that demean people who are made in the image of God. We want to come alongside of them and lead them to the truth so that they might know that they're made in the image of God. And let me say clearly, if you are someone who has dealt with the issue of um, struggling with your identity or you've struggled with gender confusion, in many ways, it feels like you are fighting for your very survival. And a community where over 40% of people attempt suicide is clearly a community in pain. And I believe Jesus wants to meet you in that pain and lead you to the truth of who he's created you to be. And I would hope that this community of Jesus followers in this room will be a place where you're able to do that. We're able to be honest about how you truly feel, what you're truly wrestling with. Because the reality is, whether we're wrestling with gender confusion or identity or other things, all of us are being lied to. All of us are... are are wrestling against the things, the brokenness in our lives, the pain that's been caused to us. We all need the same thing. We need the healing of Jesus. We need, the, we need to receive what he said so that we can put off all of these other things that have been spoken to us. So I'll just end with this for us to remember a few things. Remember that our battle is never, ever against people maybe manifested in people and policies, but our battle is, as Scripture says, against, not against flesh and blood, but against every power and principality of this dark world. This is something 
It's been happening since Genesis. So our battle isn't against people. So how do we, how do we remember that? Spend more time in prayer. Pray, pray, pray. Our battle isn't against people. Number two, our standard for truth is God's word. Our standard for truth is God's word. God's word hasn't changed. And uh, I've said this before. Oftentimes we nod and agree to God's word until it says something we don't like. (laughs) Something that feels a little personal. And then we try and become theologians and figure out a way around God's word. God's word is our standard. And then the last thing is Jesus is our example. We are embodied truth, and God chose to become embodied as well through Jesus so that we would have an example to follow. He ate with sinners. He demonstrated compassion. He stood on truth. May we be that type of person, the person that what reflects Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, how very few people can say anything about, bad about Jesus but oftentimes it's way too easy to say something negative about his followers. And so we want to be a church that aligns ourselves so closely with Jesus that they can't say anything negative about either. Amen? Amen. And so I want to ask you this morning, um, just where, we're, where we are, we're just going to take a few minutes and, and, and pray. Pray for wisdom. The, James says that we can ask for wisdom and God will give it to us. Pray for compassion, that we would always lead with compassion. And pray for discernment as we see evil practices being perpetrated on the most vulnerable in our society. That God would show us how we can stand alongside of those vulnerable and speak truth. So let's pray together. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.